Our scripture reading this morning is from John 6, 22 through 35. It's on page 755 in your pew Bible. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat, and they realized Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, We want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, Show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't food marvelous? We are blessed to live in a city that has quite a repertoire of amazing restaurants where you can go and get just about anything you want, and I've been blessed to go experience some of that with, with many of you. Uh, it may be that the food is just great, and it really, nothing else matters about that particular restaurant. It may be an absolute hole in the wall, nothing that you would look at it and say, wow, that looks nice, but just you know the food has a reputation of being amazing. Sometimes it's the experience, it's the view from a restaurant where the food is, it might be important, but you're there to see what you can see from that setting. It may be that the company that you're with makes that uh, restaurant experience really important. It could be the service that you receive that really makes or breaks your dining experience. Uh, But sometimes it's just the atmosphere. Sometimes it's just the, uh, the name of where you are and what's hanging on the wall, and I can give an example. A few weeks ago, Colson and I went to L.A. to celebrate his 16th birthday, which was yesterday, and we found this restaurant in the Atlanta airport. Now, airports are not normally places where you share marvelous meals and meaningful you know, food, but when it says Atlanta Braves on the outside of it, I mean, there was just something that struck a chord deep 
in our hearts. And when we sit down and I'm looking at Colston and over his left shoulder, you have Bobby Cox's jersey. I mean, it was just like a sacred kind of space where we could break bread um, together. This morning we're talking about food. And we just read a passage. Thank you, um, Angie, for reading from John chapter 6, this passage where Jesus says, I am bread. I am true bread, the bread of life. Of course, the Gospel of John has a number of I am statements where Jesus says, I am this or I am that. But we're going to focus in on bread. On this Sunday where we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and we will receive bread at the end of the service. And I want us to just spend a few minutes between now and then thinking about why bread? Why did Jesus take food and relate it to himself and say that he was really the only bread, the bread of life, true living bread? The context of chapter 6 cannot be overlooked. Jesus earlier in this chapter had fed, we say 5,000, of course you all know it, they, were, they counted the men, so the crowd was enormous, a huge crowd of people who came to hear Jesus teach and, and receive healing, quite honestly, and um, you know, now when you go to a big event, the food that will be available for you to purchase they're probably making as much money on that as they are the actual event that you're there. Walking through uh, the Raleigh-Durham airport yesterday, I was just, I was amazed. I was like, this is really a mall where you can happen to get on an airplane if you would like to. I mean, there's just so much for sale and so much um, food that is there everywhere we go. It is very much a part of our economy. But what about when you're just in an open field and there's thousands of people and there's no provisions? It was, it was a problem, and Jesus, of course, took a, a little boy's lunch and blessed it and multiplied it and fed the entire crowd. So that's the context for what he says later in the chapter. We, we can't really talk about this statement, I am true bread, without you know, keeping in mind that he just performed this incredible miracle where, he received, where people received from the hands of the apostles bread that Jesus had supernaturally multiplied. So we have that in John chapter 6, and then we have Jesus walking on water, and then we have this statement about Jesus being bread. And so the, the central verse that we're, that we're considering is verse 35 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. What's really interesting about this statement is that when we zoom out and think about the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus had a food problem. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus had a serious food issue. I want to give you some examples of that. Jesus was, he was criticized for who he ate with. When he broke bread with, with sinners, with tax collectors and prostitutes, uh, it was ammunition for the op opposition to say, well, look at who he eats with. 
I mean, why would anybody knowingly sit down and have a, a meal, a meaningful moment with, that, with those types of people? So he was criticized for the company that he kept when he, when he broke bread. He probably would have been okay, you know, if he was just preaching, right? If he was just in a, and he was preaching and the sinners were there listening and people would say, oh, well, you know, he's, he's trying to get them right. He's trying to make them repent and so forth. But he would go into their homes and he would sit down with them and he, he wasn't yelling and screaming and condemning and pointing fingers. He was, he was asking them to, you know, pass the biscuits. I mean, it's an intimate kind of moment that, that you share when you eat with someone. And, and it made the religious people uncomfortable. It bothered them that he would sit elbow to elbow with these people and, you know, share that space and that food with these unworthy people. He was criticized. He was called uh, a glutton and a drunk. Remember John the Baptist, uh, his relative, uh, they, they criticized him because, you know, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't partake. And, and then they, they criticized Jesus because he, he would sit down and he would, he would drink wine. And, and, he would, and he would eat. He would enjoy a meal, it would seem. And so his opponents would look at that and they would say, wow, you know, that's not very, that's not very holy. That's not very sacred. I mean, I think he had probably more of those dumplings than he should have eaten. That's just not classy. But Jesus, would, he would eat. He would enjoy the meal. And he was criticized for it. He was criticized, another instance of, his, of a food problem that Jesus had is that he was criticized for not, not ceremonially washing his hands before a meal. You know, the law said that there were steps, you know, that you should do to... And it was, it was part, you know, good hygiene, but it was really kind of uh, a ritual that they would go through that, that, to make sure that you all know that I'm, I'm a really spiritual guy. I'm going to cleanse my hands in the proper way before we have this meal. And he didn't do that. And so they criticized him for that. We think about uh, John chapter 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, Jesus says to her, after asking her for water, of course, and they begin this conversation, this dialogue, which again was, would have been scandalous for a number of reasons, but he says to her, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And then she basically says to him, who do you think you are? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who, who dug this well? And here we get the same kind of criticism. Who do you think you are? They said, do you think you're greater than Moses, who gave our ancestors manna in the wilderness? Jesus wasn't the only one who had food problems or food issues. Peter faced it as well. In particular, we think about the book of Acts, uh, where uh, Peter has this vision, and you remember where the, uh, the sheet comes up, and there are all these, these animals on it, and, and God says, you know, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter has a problem with what God has just said, because those are not the animals that, that you're allowed to eat. 
And so he has this kind of awkward experience where God says, you know, it's not up to you to be the judge of what's clean and unclean. You don't get to call unclean anything that God has made. Of course, the whole purpose for that was then Peter was challenged and invited to come to the house of Cornelius where there were Gentiles and they were, they were hungry. They wanted to know about Jesus. They wanted to receive the Holy Spirit, baptized. And Peter had just been taught this lesson about food that was unclean, no, it's clean. And now there's these people who are unclean, no, they're clean. And it was a pivotal moment for Peter to realize the gospel isn't just a Jewish thing. It's for the world. It's for the world. And it was time to do away with the old constructs of who's clean and who's not, who's bad and who's good, who's in and who's out. Jesus says, if they come to me, receive them. And it was rather scandalous. So Jesus had food issues. Peter had food issues. The early church had food issues. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul chastises the, the church at Corinth for abusing the Lord's Supper. And he, he, he encourages them to examine themselves before they receive this sacred meal. Uh, now, this is an interesting passage for us because what's the correlation? I mean, what, what you and I call the Lord's Supper really doesn't resemble any kind of supper that you and I typically eat. And so how do we abuse this meal? It's highly unlikely that any of you would sneak in here before worship service and drink all our juice or eat all our bread. If you did that, we would have a talk. But, but what, what, how do we, what do we gain from this? Abuse of the Lord's Supper. Of course, we could approach the meal and have unconfessed sin and so forth in our hearts. And, and we need to deal with that before we receive this meal, certainly. But I think Wednesday nights are actually a better barometer for us. When we come together and share you know, a real meal around a table, how do we partake of that meal? And what is the atmosphere and what is the spirit of that meal? If you don't normally come on Wednesday nights, I mean, I'll tell you, it, it, it's pretty lovely. I mean, people sit down and they enjoy talking to each other and catching up and sharing life and sharing food. But I came across this this week uh, because I remembered that there, you know, the early church was criticized over food. And so I was doing some research and I came across this, this story on um, Christianity.com. And it's talking about the, the second century church. Um, Menicius Felix wrote this, uh, this piece that has survived since the second century A.D., and it's his recount of, of when he was walking along with two people. One was a Christian, and his name was Octavius, and the other was Caecilius, and he was not a believer. And these two get in an argument, and he records the argument. It's so outlandish, I had to go get one of my seminary books, The His History of Christianity, and look it up just to make sure that this was not just, you know, some t every now and then, I, I hate to tell you this, there's some stuff on the internet that might not be 100% factual. So just bear that in mind sometimes when you come across something. But, but I, I went to my seminary textbook, opened it up, and there's the story. It's unbelievable what this Christian and this non-Christian are arguing about in the 2nd century A.D., 
the non-Christian Cochilius is accusing Christians of all sorts of unbelievable things. He accuses them of being cannibals because they eat the bread of the, the, the body of Jesus and drink his blood. So there's there's this rumor going around that they're they're cannibalistic. They're eating people in those Christian meetings. There were rumors that they were sacrificing their children. And then there's a whole section that because there are minors in the room, I can't even go into. But it's unbelievable what the, what the pagan is accusing the Christian of indulging in. So from Jesus on, Christians seem to have had food issues. Food is so central to our lives. We must have it, right? We have to have some sort of... Nourishment And one of the common biblical contexts concerning food is when it's lacking. So I want to talk for a minute about that scarcity problem or issue. Scarcity to abundance. And we see this over and over in the rhythm of Jesus' ministry. Of course, we just mentioned the feeding of the 5,000. That had just happened. You had all these people and you had no food or practically no food. Very little. Certainly not enough to do the job. And Jesus moves the situation from scarcity to abundance. You remember there were leftovers. Lots of leftovers after this miracle. The disciples' catch, which we talked about recently, uh, when they were initially called to, to follow Jesus and after the resurrection. Jesus tells them after they fished all night and caught nothing to recast their nets, and they have this miraculous catch. They go from nothing, from scarcity to abundance. What about the first sign, the first miracle in John? Jesus is at the wedding in Cana, and they run out of wine. And Jesus takes, or instructs the servants, actually, to take the pots, the vessels, and fill them up with water, and then he does the miracle of turning that into wine. In the Old Testament, we've got Elisha and the widow's oil. Uh, that story really wasn't about oil. It was about the redemption of her two sons who were about to be enslaved because she couldn't pay her outstanding debts. And so Elisha says to her, go borrow vessels from everywhere. Don't just get a few. And there ends up being an absolute abundance. So in, this, in a culture of abundance, so the question that I posed for us this morning, in, in a culture of abundance where we're perhaps not experiencing Scarcity of food, how do we struggle with scarcity? And it may be perhaps that there is in some way a scarcity that we experience in our abundance. That's another sermon perhaps. I want to say a word about the quality of Christ's provisions. You know, when he would step up and do a miracle, it wasn't just about the quantity. Think about the story of, of the water in to wine. They were amazed because that wine was better than the wine they had run out of. And I think Jesus offers us this really great lesson in hospitality. That he doesn't just provide, but that he provides well. He cares about the quality. And so when we go to feed the hungry... We don't take them scraps and, and stuff that's bad. 
but we present something that's a blessing and something that's really good. Jesus doesn't ignore the physical lack of food. He meets the needs over and over around him, and then he capitalizes on the event to teach a deeper lesson. We'll look at a verse, uh, verses 32 and, and 33. This is from the Message Translation. Uh, listen to uh, the words of Jesus here. He says, The real significance of that scripture is not that Moses gave you bread from heaven, but that my Father is right now offering you bread from heaven, the real bread, the bread of God came down out of heaven and is giving life to the world. It's a present invitation. When we celebrate this meal, we're not just remembering something that happened 2,000 years ago. We are experiencing Jesus' ongoing invitation to the table, to abundance, to being nourished in the deepest of ways. Of course, Jesus would talk about food and he would talk about our hunger in ways that weren't just strictly, strictly related to our physical hungers. We might describe it as, as superfood when Jesus says things like this during the wilderness temptation. In Jesus' response to, uh, to Satan to turn the stones into bread after Jesus had been fasting and praying for so long. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from God. So there's this, this superfood that Jesus has access to that the devil couldn't comprehend. And then to his disciples, when they return from the Samaritan village and find him talking to the woman at the well, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus isn't just about providing in abundance, but Jesus is abundance. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is what the true bread offers us spiritually is the best life, not just survival, but the best life that satisfies our deepest Yearnings. When I was on the plane uh, Friday, I was reading through a devotional by Calvin Miller, and coincidentally, I don't, I don't believe that. I think the Spirit just brought me to this particular devotion, which happened to be the next one that I was reading. But Calvin Miller uh, was sharing about uh, the very story of Jesus' temptation to turn bread into stones. And listen to what he said. I thought this was absolutely fantastic in his book, Conversations with Jesus, where he's writing from the first person. Um, so it's as if Jesus is saying this. If I had used even one tiny quantum of power to change those stones to bread, I might have next changed the dust to butter and the fallen leaves to jam. Do you sense... There is a downward progress in the licenses you grant yourself. Appetites can tempt you to become totally self-serving. They can lure you to what you want, when you want to have it. They can deceive you into believing that you no longer have to wait on anything. Finally, you will become only the sum 
of all your cravings. And then he closes out the devotion with this statement. Drunkenness, gluttony, and infidelity, which seem gratifying at first, in the end bring only captivity. Addictions begin in the act of changing one little stone into one little loaf. Isn't that great? The question I think that Jesus poses for us today is, do we want to eat the living bread, the true bread, or what we might call dead bread? Because the world is offering us plenty of options. There's plenty of people who are looking at the whole Jesus Christian church thing and going, no thanks, I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy on my own doing other things, and I don't need that. I believe ultimately that all that the world offers, and it offers plenty, is dead bread. That people may take and eat and take and eat and take and eat, but in the end they will be eating nothing that can nourish their souls, nothing that will matter when we come to the end. I want to read this great passage from Isaiah, where he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. The New King James Version says, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. What Jesus invites us to this morning is not an ordinary meal. It's, it's not just juice and bread. It's really an apocalyptic meal. Listen to what he says about it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, I tell you, I will not drink again of this, the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And in Luke, for I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This meal is about what really matters. Jesus, satisfying that in us which is the deepest, where there is the greatest scarcity, where there is hunger, where there is woundedness that needs to be healed. That's what this meal does. That's what Jesus is about. So this morning there is an invitation to the table. May we come and remember that Christ is the living bread, the only bread. May He nourish our souls and be our strength for living. Food is absolutely essential. We cannot live without it. But food also brings us to the table and it sets the stage for relationship, for fellowship, for Christian community. This morning I invite you in just a moment 
and uh, we have three stations at the front, so you will go to your left and come around and receive uh, the elements and go back down this aisle. You in the center will come to your left and receive the elements and return that way. You all, I'll ask you to go to your, to your right, to the outside edge and receive the elements and return back through the center aisle. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for the table this morning? Jesus, you are the only bread, the only one who satisfies the deep yearnings of our heart. Lord, we have been through seasons, relationships, experiences, perhaps even addictions where we have tried other things and other people to fill that space. And it never works. Only you satisfy us. So this morning, God, as we come to the table and receive this bite of bread, may it be a reminder, an act of worship, an act of reverence, to receive your sacrifice for us. And to remember that though your body was broken and your blood was shed for us, the tomb is empty. You overcame. And so this is not dead bread that we eat this morning, but it is, it is living bread. You are still alive and still at work in our lives, and this morning we celebrate that, we honor that, and we invite you to continue to work in our lives to help us where we hunger. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus was in the upper room, and he took the bread, and he, he gave thanks to the Father who provides all our bread and all that which satisfies our longings. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body, torn, pulled apart for you. Take and eat. And he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood, shed for you. And whoever eats this meal proclaims the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you stand and, and come to the table?
Before we have our hymn of response this morning, I want to offer you this challenge. I invite you to set aside a time this week, whether it be one meal or one day, to practice the discipline of fasting. Forgive me, I know it's not Lent, so we shouldn't be talking about that right now, but um, there is value in this practice, and it's why Jesus said, when you fast, not if you fast, there is something about our physical hunger, right? Because it, it comes. Our stomachs are accustomed to getting what they get. We're very blessed to not have real physical hunger where we're facing starvation or anything like that, but I think there's value in experiencing the grumbling stomach because it's a prompt. It's a prompt for us to pray and ask Christ to nourish us, to give us what we need, to be our Lord and our Savior, the one who sustains us and strengthens us. So this week, I hope that you'll take the time uh, to do that, and I believe that Jesus will honor that. It may sound silly if we're not accustomed to doing it, but what does God care if you skip a meal? Well, if you skip it for His glory... He cares, and I think he honors those efforts. We'll have our hymn of response, and if you've never accepted Christ into your heart, then certainly we would encourage you to do that this morning, or if you're interested in baptism or joining the fellowship of this church, uh, we invite you to do that. So let's stand and sing a hymn of response.